In today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Andrew Dent and Jennifer Gumpert from Material Connection. Material Connection is a material insights company who works to connect product designers with the right materials for whatever they might be creating. Jennifer and Andrew will help us tackle questions around materials and sustainability from a material science lens. Specifically, we wanted to know, can material innovation save our world? I'm your host, Meredith Campbell, research and content development at ThinkLab, the research division of Sandow Design Group. And this is The Learning Objective, the first podcast where you can receive CEU credit for listening. But first, I'm pleased to introduce Caitlin Smorelli of Delta Fawcett Company, today's episode sponsor, to walk you through the learning objectives. After listening to today's episode, you'll be able to first, identify key themes in material innovation. Second, contrast trends in the consumer goods space with those impacting the design industry. Third, analyze how sustainability is impacting product design in interiors. And lastly, examine how adaptability will be a key theme in the future. You'll hear from Caitlin again later in the episode with instructions on how you can obtain continuing education credit through IDCEC or AIA for listening. My name is Jennifer Gumpert. I am the VP of Business Operations at Material Connection. My name is Andrew Dent, I'm EVP of Material Research at Material Connection. We typically work in the product design space. I like to tell people if it's a company who makes a thing, we can work with them. So if you look at everything on your desk right now, it's a thing and it was made by a company. So we can actually support any challenges that they might be experiencing. And as you can imagine, largely these days, that's been around sustainability. So if you think about the things you have within arm's reach of you, how is that product made? What are the materials that we're using? And how are those materials thinking about their end of life and their sustainability story? And Material Connection isn't just working with companies in the architecture and design industry. We work with every major brand across every industry. We're always looking for materials and inspiration from other industries. How does something that's going on in aerospace ultimately affect Um, consumer electronics or bedding, for instance. So that's really kind of our calling card that we can look across those various industries, look at things industry agnostic, look at the problem that they solve or how they approach a problem, and then ultimately use that information and that insight to bring into their particular product line. So everything from consumer electronics, consumer packaged goods, all the way through architecture, design, et cetera. We first wanted to know, what is their team tracking in material innovation? First, carbon neutrality. Now, whenever a product is made, the carbon footprint is the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions that go into producing that product, the use or the life of that product, and the disposal or the end of life of a product. It's been interesting to see how 
we have moved from a sort of general idea about sustainability into more specific attributes. And carbon neutrality, I think, is one of the main drivers. Of course, we want to make sure that we have as low a carbon footprint as possible. But it's been industries that you perhaps wouldn't have expected. Um, normally high energy, high heat, very intensive industries have started moving towards this. We've seen it in carbon neutral steel. There was a profile recently in the New Yorker about a Swedish company that's actually produced fossil fuel free steel. It's basically enabling the production of steel, which is a very high energy process, to do it with zero fossil fuels. We've seen the same with glass as well. There's a company, I think, over in Europe that is doing 100% recycled content glass uh, that's also carbon neutral. And we've got another company that's doing it for aluminum as well. They haven't quite perfected it yet, but Apple's been a big investor in that company, and there's a real chance that it'll be getting there soon. So we're starting to see innovation, not just in the materials themselves, but in the process. Because, of course, a lot of this stuff that you make you know, there's a carbon footprint associated with that. So I think we've seen a lot of innovation around carbon neutrality in, in some industries you typically wouldn't have thought of. Second, a fascinating alternative to concrete called Biolith. Biolith is a material from a company called Biomason, which to me is fascinating because it's producing concrete-like tiles that uses pavers, as wall, wall tiles, etc. But it's doing it rather than the very energy-intensive process of typical Portland cement, where you've got to heat up the materials to a very high temperature in order to ensure that they work well. This company is doing it with bacteria, and the bacteria is actually producing limestone. So you put a whole bunch of recycled aggregates, you can probably get it from a construction site, you can put that together with the right sort of bacteria, and they produce limestone, which then glues the tile together. So rather than using high heat to produce Portland cement, you've now got a, a biological process, which is making high compressive strength, basically just pieces of cast or constructed concrete-like material that's super durable, as long-lasting as regular cement, but now with virtually no carbon at all. So that to me is exciting as well. So for me, innovation is always like the wonderful new materials, but a lot of it is in the process as well. So I'm enjoying seeing a real understanding that we need to bring down our carbon footprint, and we can do that in the way we actually process and manufacture materials. The third innovation that their team is excited about, mass balance. Mass balance is perhaps not a term you've heard of, but it's basically the idea that rather than, let's say, we take our standard soda bottle, your standard polyester soda bottle, that we know is being recycled about 25%, and a lot of it's going into fabric. So let's say in interiors, you've got a recycled polyester fabric, chances are it came from a soda bottle. So that's a great source for recycled content. However, there's a whole bunch more plastics out there. So we've got nylons, we've got polypropylene, all sorts of different materials. The challenge is that in order to separate them effectively, so if I've got a polyester bottle here, but then I've got a, let's say, a nylon product here, separating those effectively, and then being able to recycle them individually and then produce products out of them, it's hard to do. So what they're doing with mass balance is they're taking all of these other plastics and putting them in a one big bin. And that one big bin, they'll use chemistry to dissolve it all down, and they can break it down into basic monomers, the basic building blocks that all plastics are made out of. So if we think of, um, you know, how all current fossil fuel-based plastics have come from oil. So it's taking all these plastics and basically almost taking it back down to the oil stays. So you can put in a nylon or polypropylene or whatever else plastic, put it all into a big vat, bring it down to the oil stage, and then you can build up the plastic from there. So it's a way of meaning that you don't have to separate out your plastics in order to make recycled content things. And while these innovations around product and process are extremely exciting, Andrew encourages us to remember the materials that we already have. It may be an American mindset, you know, the love of innovation. It's why this country is so great, is that we have a, a lot of new things we want to progress, we want to move forward. If you compare that, say, to a more European mindset, they perfect an existing solution. So let's take luxury clothing. They're using the same 
craftspeople that they have done for the last 50 years. But the idea is that they're perfecting it through just improving the same material. In the US, we prefer to find a more innovative, new sort of something that's got all bells and whistles. And I think the challenge with that has been that, although it may sell more, when it bumps up against sustainability, I think that's the challenge. Innovation, for innovation's sake, I don't think is, is worth doing anymore. I think consumers are expecting, if it's going to be an innovation, there has to be a reason for it. It has to be aligned with the values of the company and also the values of the person who's going to purchase it as well. So if we wanted to purchase more new things, we want to at least make sure that it was done in the right way. So I think sustainability has pushed back against it, the complexity, the over-engineering of certain products. So I think perhaps we're moving towards better products, but simpler and working harder at the existing materials to make sure that they have been effective. When we design our interiors, when we make our furniture, we're not going to completely change the materials we use overnight. We know how to work with these materials. We know how to make them efficiently, and they're going to have durability, longevity. They're going to, they're going to deliver the sort of aesthetics that we want. So I think better to solve the problems of existing materials. You know, innovation is great, and, and new materials are always going to be looking for those. That's part of what we do. But I think in order to attack and tackle sustainability effectively, you've got to work with the existing materials as well. Next, looking outside of the architecture and design industry for inspiration, what are some of the trends they're tracking? First, companies are looking at things in a much more holistic way. One of the things that we're most excited about is we're finally seeing that companies are starting to look at things in a much more holistic way, in a much more of a material-minded way, and we're really rising to that occasion with them. But one of the reasons why we're so excited about that is because we believe very strongly that unless you look at everything, right? Much like Andrew's describing that it isn't just about making innovation material itself, but also looking at the processes behind it, we're really relieved to see that companies and organizations are starting to look at this as not a single problem. It's not just about the product, just about the material. It's about everything from design iteration through to completion and on shelf. And a big part of that is transparency all the way through the process. That's through the materials that you're using, the way you're obtaining those materials, the labor you're using to manufacture, everything about transparency is becoming really important. So we're finding that unless companies are really prepared to stand up and tell the whole story, everything, they're going to get called out. So that's kind of interesting to see. And it's really wonderful to see companies that are rising to that occasion and really, you know, heading it off of the pass and making commitments to that level of transparency. We're also seeing that companies have to make things differently and think about the materials that they're using to make those things, right? Sustainability at its core is about the materials that you're using and the methods that you use to get your product made. We're happy to see that, but we're also seeing kind of tangentially to that, that the pendulum has swung when it comes to tolerances for greenwashing, right? There was a period of time where there was a, a lack of knowledge and understanding and ignorance around what green and sustainability really meant. There was a lot of greenwashing happening and that pendulum has swung dramatically the other way. There's a recent example. The Sustainable Apparel Coalition was an organization that provided tools to make an assessment of how sustainable your product was, whether it's a t-shirt, an outer jacket, that sort of thing. So if you think about it in kind of in the same way that you would leave, there's a tool to assess and then present about the level of sustainability of your product. Now, a Norwegian, I think it was a consulting firm, actually recently called out the Sustainable Apparel Coalition because apparently what it had been doing was it had been promoting the use of synthetic fabrics 
because they were overall lower carbon footprint, but not mentioning that a significant amount of the microplastics out there in the sea are the result of washing synthetic fabrics. So although it was being honest and basically saying, okay, this is a lower carbon footprint than perhaps like a, a cotton fabric, what it didn't mention, and what the Norwegian firm said they should have done to full transparency was to say, okay, well, you might have a lower carbon footprint, but you are promoting the, the creation of a whole bunch of microplastics in the, in the ecosystem. So this idea that Full transparency says, okay, we're using this material because we think it's got a lower carbon footprint, but we also have to admit that if you do purchase this product, it is going to contribute to microplastic concentration in the sea. So it was sort of this, this moment of, oh, well, we thought we were doing well, and we were doing well, and we were showing how we were doing well, but now we've got to tell you everything. And that level of full transparency, I think, is now expected. Tell us the good, but also tell us the bad, because we need to know. Finally, the Material Connection team is observing a new level of thinking around what they call material-minded design. We're really excited to see how material thinking, material-minded thinking when it comes to designers and a more educated designer coming out of college and people really taking the time to understand the materials that you work with makes you a different kind of designer. It makes you think more engineering-wise or more holistically about the product that you're using and also to think about how your end consumer will be using it, right? So we're excited to see that because even just up until about five, six years ago, it was a very siloed approach. Everything was kind of in its own little buckets. You had the designers, you had the iterators, right? The, the imaginers, you had the prototyping, you had engineering, you had supply chain, like you had these very specific silos. We're seeing that kind of get washed away and kind of muddled, which I think is really important in order to make smarter decisions, also faster decisions. There's a lot of efficiency in that more agile mindset, right? If you think about project management, agile and waterfall, it was very waterfall and now everything's very agile. So we're happy to see that too, because we think that companies are going to be able to make decisions more quickly with a greater impact in the long run. Now, looking within the architecture and design industry, they've identified these three key movements. First, circularity. It's a word that's used an awful lot. Certainly a lot of our clients are using it. I'd like to at least make a clarification about circularity. So there's a difference between sustainability and circularity. And I always use the, the example of the egg carton. If you are interested in having the lowest carbon footprint, i.e. the most sustainable in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, you should be using a styrofoam egg carton every single time. A significantly lower carbon footprint than paper. However, if you're interested in circularity, you don't want to put a whole bunch of plastic out there into the world. You want something which is much more easily recyclable, then you go with the paper. The paper has a higher carbon footprint. So circularity often means eschewing the most low carbon footprint in favor of something which will have a much more circular approach to manufacture use and the end of life. So when we talk about circularity, sometimes we have to push back against the lowest carbon footprint. Because if we think about, you know, in most instances, Anytime you're going to use a material, chances are plastic has the lowest carbon footprint. But as we know from single-use plastic packaging, this isn't always the best solution to have. So I think circularity is something that I think has taken hold, partially because I think the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, Ellen MacArthur was a, a around the world a yachts person. She set up a foundation and they have been pushing the idea of circularity because of the concern about plastics. But I think circularity, is it's been top of mind for a lot of our clients, whether it's in uh, interior space, specifically in retail space, where you've got the, you've got interiors that change more regularly. If you think about a retail space, you're going to have you can change that out for maybe between five to seven years. If it's visual merchandising, uh, it could be even as low as a year. 
So there, the idea of circularity has definitely been a trend that we've seen a lot of our clients interested in. How do we have materials that potentially come from a bio-based or recycled content source, get used, are effective in their use, but then have a potential second life? And what is that second life? So it's always been challenging with interiors because the majority of materials you want to put in there and you want them to stay there. So you use a lot of glue, you use a lot of fixings, which may make them very hard to pull apart. If we look at flooring, you know, there's an awful lot of recycling of, uh, let's say, PVC flooring out there. But the challenge is it needs to be clean. If you've got a bunch of glue on the back of it, you've lost the ability to recycle it. So often the methods we use in order to make things more durable push back against circularity. So it's something that a lot of people talk about, but it's not something that it's been easy to achieve so far. A car, I could potentially recycle 95% of all those materials because I can move it around. Not so easy with interiors. The second trend they're seeing in the commercial interiors industry, wellness. This is a continuing trend, but I think the idea of wellness is just a continuation of sustainability, of circularity. The idea of, you know, we just want to make sure we have cleaner, simpler, in a way, materials that we're using. Complexity always causes problems with sustainability. The more complex it is, the more different types of materials are in there, the more it's stuck together with other things, the harder it is to have a low impact that material. So for us, wellness is sort of one of those areas that I think we're starting to see a lot of real material innovation, simplifying things such as elastic uh, fabrics, upholstery fabrics, uh, a, try a move towards how can we make natural fibers a lot more durable? How can we maybe simplify those rather than just putting a whole bunch of, of clean coatings, etc., and extra chemicals in there? How do we change the construction? How do we change the material type to ensure that it's just as durable as something that was perhaps from a synthetic source. So I think wellness is also pushing towards how do we use more natural fibers, natural materials, moving away from plastics. In the effort to move away from plastics, durability poses a challenge when it comes to bio-based materials or materials that are made from natural sources rather than a synthetic source like petroleum. The interiors industry differs from other outside industries in this way. What we tend to see with companies producing products for interiors is there is a desire to use bio-based, more innovative materials. But then the challenge is, of course, how do you ensure that there is really good longevity, good, good durability? Any innovation, I'm always wary of if it's just being done for innovation's sake. Um, so if they're just doing it so they can show they've got a new product made out of this wonderful algae or you know, bio-based, I love those developments. They're great, but they work very well in certain instances. And I think with interiors where you get a lot of wear and tear, you wanna make sure that product is durable, does exactly what it's supposed to do and maintains its good looks for a long time. Then to me, better to make more efficient the existing material uh, rather than just jump on the bandwagon and just use those latest algae type material. And I think we found that. So we've seen companies move into a particular bioplastic or new type of uh, material that's from a renewable source and then back out of it a little, little bit later when they realize that it doesn't have the durability that the clients are expecting. So I think there's, you know, I'm all about innovation, but I'm also about with sustainability, the sensible use of materials. I have examples from flooring companies, from wall covering companies, from people making upholstery fabrics, where they want to use this new innovative stuff. And we will get there, but sometimes being a early adopter is challenging with the interiors business because we have such high expectations for those materials. You know, if I get it wrong with a pair of sneakers, an $80 pair of sneakers, I'm less concerned than if I get it wrong with a $5,000 couch. So it's harder to innovate, or at least I would recommend that if you're gonna use the newer materials, then first see whether they've been tested in other industries first, because we keep on seeing this cycle of adopting new material and then it doesn't really pan out. So 
I think there's a lesson to be learned about innovation. Yes, just be sort of be wary of just completely new materials. And I'd say avoid using them just because they happen to be of the zeitgeist. When it comes to educating ourselves, Jennifer encourages us to remember that there is a shared responsibility that we have as consumers, as specifiers, and as manufacturers around materials. There is a responsibility that both sides have to understanding what sustainability really is, the decisions that you're making around the materials that you're using, um, but an education that is necessary at the consumer level and an education that is necessary at the corporate level and then compromises that must be made on both sides. It must be tough for interior designers and for people selling product because you've got the client who clearly wants to be more sustainable and has probably heard about certain things being on Vogue and great stories they could tell their friends. But the interior designer also needs to be able to find the right path where they are offering something which will look great in 10 years time, but also has some sustainability quotient. It's best for the interior design to be educated as much as possible. So when the questions come in about, oh, I've heard about this great new mushroom material, we should definitely be using it. Well, that's a great idea, but let me, tell, let me give you some examples of what else we could use that's similar. But I'm sure there's a lot of discussions about that, about, because there's so much information out there. You know, you can find all the information in the world at the click of a button, but it's being able to take that information and understand its context. So an educated interior designer can then take the information and say, oh, you know, it's a great idea. Can we perhaps modify it by doing this? So can talk through those problems. So I think there's a lot to be said for in, interior designers who knows about the materials so can talk intelligently about them and make the right choice for the, for the client. The example I give is before I started working for Material Connection, I didn't read the product descriptions because I didn't understand the bullet points that were listed in a product description in terms of the materials that were used. That went for the winter coat that I bought. It went for the bedding that I bought, right? The type of duvet that I have. I wouldn't have understood it at all unless I took the time to go educate myself. And I think that's probably typical of most consumers. But having worked here now the way I have, I, I look at that information differently just because by nature of the work that I do, my brain can understand it better. I think what that says, though, is that whether you're a consumer, a specifier, a product designer, a manufacturer, a supplier, a client who's ultimately telling you that this is a project they want done, until everyone has a working understanding of materiality and of sustainability and of, you know, if you flick this lever, it affects these two things over here. And until you really kind of go at your project or your work or the things in your life or the things you buy that way, right? That's where you're seeing everyone has a responsibility. Everyone is impacted by it, no matter whether you're part of the consumer process or you're part of the design process. Like that's truly the thing that kind of unifies us all and brings us all together. Given that we are all responsible for educating ourselves on materials that we use in our consumer lives and decisions we make on behalf of clients, we wanted Andrew and Jennifer's advice on where we should proceed with caution, especially as it relates to sustainability. I think when it comes to some of the things that we have to be kind of cautious of or aware of, Andrew mentioned it, this concept that you have to be very thoughtful and careful about going with what's trendy and en vogue because it's in fashion now, it's in fashion today, and it very well could change. You have to look at your problems individually and not just assume that they're going to be solved. One size fits all or one solution fits all of the things. So we have a tendency to look at things very individualistically and say, what specific challenge or problem are we trying to solve and how do we solve it in this way? So I would say that's definitely one of them. And then 
Um, Andrew, I know you feel like mushrooms are not going to save the planet, right? <laughs> Everyone's so excited about mushrooms. Yeah, and yeah, I think they're great. I mean, and they have certain applications which were wonderful. And we've seen, you know, plant-based leathers made out of mushrooms or partially out of mushrooms. So there's there's a lot of things there, but those are, are such a small amount of the materials that we use every day. They're great for a story. They're great to sort of like be creative with them, but they're not going to save the world because the majority of materials that we're using are still our standard materials. Actually, I wanted to, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, things that were on trend or on vogue. Um, Plant-based leather is a great example. You know, we moved from regular leather uh, to vegan leather, which of course is just polyurethane or, or PVC, and then we moved towards plant-based leather. And everyone was excited about these plant-based leathers. Turns out though, even if they are made out of cactus or rhubarb or apple or pineapple, there's still a significant amount of polyurethane in there. So when we talk about, oh, I want to use plant-based leathers, they don't have the same strength. And they also have you know, a top layer of polyurethane to make sure they have the durability. So you know, when people wanted to say, oh, well, I'm going to be using plant-based leather, there's always more to the story. And what we realized is that, yes, it's good that you're reducing the amount of polyurethane in there. And certainly, if we can move it so they're 100% plant-based, great. But at the moment, just because they say plant-based leather doesn't mean they're actually 100% plant-based. There's still a fair amount of plastic in there as well. So, yeah, it's a, that's a challenge with jumping on a bandwagon too quickly. Looking into the future, Andrew and Jennifer see adaptability being a key theme, playing out in multiple ways. We've seen a lot of designers, a lot of brands now looking, how do we make our designs more adaptable? How can they uh, accommodate a wider range of abilities? So I think, you know, that's the whole thing. It's just that materials and design and, and products sort of accepting that we're going to have a much faster and more extremely changing world. So therefore, let's design our materials to be able to cope with that. One thing we've realized is we are going to need to be planning for, if not just a warmer planet, a more changeable planet. So I think, for me, adaptability is going to be key. We've had discussions with the leadership team at Neom. Neom is a Saudi Arabian organization that, as you've probably seen it on, there's been a bunch of advertisements on the TV as well as the internet as well, uh, for the, something called The Line, which is a completely new city that's about 170 kilometers long, 200 meters wide, um, and will go right from the sea to the middle of the, the Saudi Arabian desert. And the idea is this entire city is going to be created as a thin strip, two sheets of glass either side that holds it in. It's supposed to be entirely fossil fuel free in terms of it has all renewable energy. It has its own desalination plant. And it's expecting this need to live under reflective glass to keep out the climate. In Saudi Arabia, of course, they're a lot further on in terms of heat and exposure to the elements than we are. But there's this sort of look about what can we design? How do we design for this changeable and potentially much warmer planet? Um, and then how do we use materials sensibly to help us with that? I think the issue, of course, is with, with them as well as with desalination is that a lot of the materials now are based upon a level of laissez-faire about our environment. We just assume that we can use, that we have clean water. That's sort of, um, we assume that we have clean air. But I think the materials now are going to have to you know, be used sensibly and also with an expectation that there will be much more adverse conditions and they will need to adapt to those conditions more effectively. I think there's a lot to be said for materials that can withstand an awful lot more. So, you know, uh, I hate to say it, but like in conversations about things that are going on in Neom, plastics are very much less important because of the likely temperature is going to have with a lot of the areas. So we're looking at a changeable planet. We're looking at a planet with a lot more aggressive environment. So I think materials 
and design that can adapt to that is probably the way forward. Here's Caitlin from Delta Fawcett Company to close out the episode and share instructions on how to obtain continuing education credit for listening to today's episode. Thank you. That was so informative. Three things from the episode stood out to me. First, innovation is happening not just in the materials themselves, but in the processes to make them. Second, while new advances in materials are certainly exciting and worth exploring, in order to address sustainability directly, you have to work with existing materials as well. Third, a lot of the time, simpler is better with sustainability. The more complex the material is, the harder it can be to have a low environmental impact. At Delta Fawcett Company, we're proud of our broad offering of water sensitive products, and we're also exploring the use of kinder materials in product and packaging while we keep quality, durability, and design top of mind. Stay tuned for updates. To obtain credits for listening, simply visit the show notes of this episode and click the link to take a short quiz. That's it. Thanks for listening and learning with us today. The Learning Objective is a Surround Podcast Network original production. Check out more shows from Surround at surroundpodcasts.com. This episode of The Learning Objective was produced and edited by Sandow Design Group. Special thanks to the podcast production team, Hannah Vitti, Wise Grisette, and Samantha Sager.